0: Section 1 of A Legend of Montrose. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brandon A Legend of Montrose by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter 1 Such as do build their faith upon the holy text of pike and gun, Decide all controversies by infallible artillery, And prove their doctrine orthodox by apostolic blows and knocks. Butler It was during the period of that great and bloody civil war Which agitated Britain during the seventeenth century, that our tale has its commencement. Scotland had as yet remained free from the ravages of intestine war, although its inhabitants were much divided in political opinions, and many of them, tired of the control of the estates of Parliament, and disapproving of the bold measure which they had adopted by sending into England a large army to the assistance of the Parliament, were determined on their part to embrace the earliest opportunity of declaring for the king and making such a diversion as should at least compel the recall of General Leslie's army out of England if it did not recover a great part of Scotland to the king's allegiance. This plan was chiefly adopted by the northern nobility who had resisted with great obstinacy the adoption of the solemn league and covenant and by many of the chiefs of the highland clans, who conceived their interest and authority to be connected with royalty, who had, besides, a decided aversion to the Presbyterian form of religion, and who, finally, were in that half-savage state of society in which war is always more welcome than peace. Great commotions were generally expected to arise from these concurrent causes, and the trade of incursion and depredation which the scotch highlanders at all times exercised upon the lowlands began to assume a more steady avowed and systematic form as part of a general military system those at the head of affairs were not insensible to the peril of the moment and anxiously made preparations to meet and to repel it they considered however with satisfaction that no leader or name of consequence had as yet appeared to assemble an army of royalists, or even to direct the efforts of those desultory bands whom love of plunder, perhaps as much as political principle, had hurried into measures of hostility. It was generally hoped that the quartering of a sufficient number of troops in the lowlands adjacent to the highland line would have the effect of restraining the mountain chieftains, while the power of various barons in the north, who had espoused the covenant as, for example, the Earl Marshal, the great families of Forbes, Leslie and Irvine, the Grants, and other Presbyterian clans, might counterbalance and bridle not only the strength of the Ogilvies and other cavaliers of Angus and King Cardine, but even the potent family of the Gordons, whose extensive authority was only equaled by their extreme dislike to the Presbyterian model. In the West Highlands, the ruling party numbered many enemies, but the power of these disaffected clans was supposed to be broken, and the spirit of their chieftains intimidated by the predominating influence of the Marquis of Argyle upon whom the confidence of the Convention of Estates was reposed with the utmost security, and whose power in the highlands, already exorbitant, had been still farther increased by concessions extorted from the king at the last pacification. It was indeed well known that Argyle was a man rather of political enterprise than personal courage." and better calculated to manage an intrigue of state than to control the tribes of hostile mountaineers. Yet the numbers of his clan, and the spirit of the gallant gentlemen by whom it was led, might, it was supposed, atone for the personal deficiencies of their chief. And as the Campbells had already severely humbled several of the neighboring tribes, it was supposed these would not readily again provoke an encounter with a body so powerful. Thus having at their command the whole west and south of Scotland, indisputably the richest part of the kingdom, Farshire being in a peculiar manner their own, and possessing many and powerful friends even north of the Fourth and Tay, the Scottish Convention of Estates saw no danger sufficient to induce them to alter the line of policy they had adopted, or to recall from the assistance of their brethren of the English parliament that auxiliary army of twenty thousand men, by means of which accession of strength the king's party had been reduced to the defensive, when in full career of triumph and success. The causes which moved the Convention of Estates at this time to take such an immediate and active interest in the Civil War of England are detailed in our historians, but may be here shortly recapitulated. They had indeed no new injury or aggression to complain of at the hand of the King, and the peace which had been made between Charles and his subjects of Scotland had been carefully observed but the Scottish rulers were well aware that this peace had been extorted from the king, as well by the influence of the parliamentary party in England as by the terror of their own arms. It is true, King Charles had since then visited the capital of his ancient kingdom, which had assented to the new organization of the church, and had distributed honors and rewards among the leaders of the party which had shown themselves most hostile to his interests, but it was suspected that distinctions so unwillingly conferred would be resumed as soon as opportunity offered. The low state of the English parliament was seen in Scotland with deep apprehension, and it was concluded that should Charles triumph by force of arms against his insurgent subjects of England, he would not be long in exacting from the scotch the vengeance which he might suppose due to those who had set the example of taking up arms against him. Such was the policy of the measure which dictated the sending the auxiliary army into England and It was avowed and a manifesto explanatory of their reasons for giving this timely and important aid to the English Parliament. The English Parliament they said had been already friendly to them, and might be so again, whereas the king, although he had so lately established religion among them according to their desires, had given them no ground to confide in his royal declaration, seeing they had found his promises and actions inconsistent with each other. Our conscience, they concluded, and God, who is greater than our conscience, beareth us record that we aim altogether at the glory of God, peace of both nations, and honor of the king, in suppressing and punishing, in a legal way, those who are the troublers of Israel, the firebrands of hell, the Korahs, the Balaams, the Doegs, the Rabshakehs, the Hamans, the Tobias, the Sanballats of our time which done, we are satisfied. Neither have we begun to use a military expedition to England as a mean for compassing those our pious ends, until all other means which we could think upon have failed us. And this alone is left to us, ultimum et unicum remedium, the last and only remedy leaving it to causists to determine whether one contracting party is justified in breaking a solemn treaty, upon the suspicion that, in certain future contingencies, it might be infringed by the other, we shall proceed to mention two other circumstances that had at least equal influence with the Scottish rulers and nation, with any doubts which they entertained of the king's good faith. The first of these was the nature and condition of their army, headed by a poor and discontented nobility, under whom it was officered chiefly by Scottish soldiers of fortune, who had served in the German wars until they had lost almost all distinction of political principle, and even of country, in the adoption of the mercenary faith that a soldier's principal duty was fidelity to the state or sovereign from whom he received his pay without respect either to the justice of the quarrel or to their own connection with either of the contending parties to men of this stamp grotius applies the severe character nullum vitae genus et improbius quameorum Quisine causae, respectu mercede conducti militant. To these mercenary soldiers, as well as to the needy gentry with whom they were mixed in command, and who easily imbibed the same opinions, the success of the late short invasion of England in sixteen forty one was a sufficient reason for renewing so profitable an experiment. The good pay and free quarters of England had made a feeling impression upon the recollection of these military adventurers, and the prospect of again levying eight hundred and fifty pounds a day came in place of all arguments, whether of state or of morality. Another cause inflamed the minds of the nation at large, no less than the tempting prospect of the wealth of England animated the soldiery. So much had been written and said on either side concerning the form of church government that it had become a matter of infinitely more consequence in the eyes of the multitude than the doctrines of that gospel which both churches had embraced. The prelatists and Presbyterians of the more violent kind became as illiberal as the papists, and would scarcely allow the possibility of salvation beyond the pale of their respective churches. It was in vain, remarked to these zealots, that had the author of our holy religion considered any peculiar form of church government as essential to salvation, it would have been revealed with the same precision as under the Old Testament dispensation both parties continued as violent as if they could have pleaded the distinct commands of heaven to justify their intolerance laud in the days of his domination had fired the train by attempting to impose upon the scottish people church ceremonies foreign to their habits and opinions the success with which this had been resisted And the Presbyterian model substituted in its place, had endeared the latter to the nation, as the cause in which they had triumphed. The solemn league and covenant, adopted with such zeal by the greater part of the kingdom, and by them forced at the sword's point upon the others, bore in its bosom, as its principal object, the establishing of the doctrine and discipline of the Presbyterian Church and the putting down of all error and heresy, and having attained for their own country the establishment of this golden candlestick, the Scots became liberally and fraternally anxious to erect the same in England. This, they conceived, might be easily attained by lending to the Parliament the effectual assistance of the Scottish forces. The Presbyterians, a numerous and powerful party in the English Parliament, Had hitherto taken the lead in opposition to the king, while the independents and other sectaries, who afterwards, under Cromwell, resumed the power of the sword, and overset the Presbyterian model both in Scotland and England, were as yet contented to lurk under the shelter of the wealthier and more powerful party. The prospect of bringing to a uniformity the kingdoms of England and Scotland in discipline and worship, seemed therefore as fair as it was desirable. The celebrated Sir Henry Vane, one of the commissioners who negotiated the alliance betwixt England and Scotland, saw the influence which this bait had upon the spirits of those with whom he dealt, and although himself a violent independent, he contrived at once to gratify and to elude the eager desires of the Presbyterians, by qualifying the obligation to reform the Church of England as a change to be executed according to the word of God and the best-reformed churches. Deceived by their own eagerness, themselves entertaining no doubts on the jus divinium of their ecclesiastical establishments, and not holding it possible such doubts could be adopted by others, the convention of estates and the kirk of scotland conceived that such expressions necessarily inferred the establishment of presbytery nor were they undeceived until when their help was no longer needful the sectaries gave them to understand that the phrase might as well be applied to independency or any other mode of worship which those who were at the head of affairs at the time might consider as agreeable to the word of god and the practice of the reformed churches neither were the outwitted scottish less astonished to find that the designs of the english sectaries struck against the monarchical constitution of britain it having been their intention to reduce the power of the king but by no means to abrogate the office they fared however in this respect like rash physicians who commence by over physicking a patient until he is reduced to a state of weakness from which cordials are afterwards unable to recover him but these events were still in the womb of futurity as yet the scottish parliament held their engagement with england consistent with justice prudence and piety and their military undertaking seemed to succeed to their very wish. The junction of the Scottish army with those of Fairfax and Manchester enabled the parliamentary forces to besiege York and to fight the desperate action of Long Marston Moor, in which Prince Rupert and the Marquis of Newcastle were defeated. The Scottish auxiliaries indeed had less of the glory of this victory than their countrymen could desire. David Leslie, with their cavalry, fought bravely, and to them, as well as to Cromwell's Brigade of Independence, the honor of the day belonged. But the old Earl of Leven, the convenating general, was driven out of the field by the impetuous charge of Prince Rupert. And was thirty miles distant in full flight towards Scotland, when he was overtaken by the news that his party had gained a complete victory. The absence of these auxiliary troops, upon this crusade for the establishment of Presbyterianism in England, had considerably diminished the power of the convention of estates in Scotland, and had given rise to those agitations among the anti covenanters which we have noticed at the beginning of this chapter. End of section 1